Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded live in front of a virtual audience at a side event of the International Migration Review Forum. The episode is produced in partnership with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and CGIAR. The event was titled Climate-Related Mobility and Conflict, Pathways to Peace and Human Security, and includes some extended expert commentary on this topic. You will first hear from Shegan Fan, System Board Member, CGIAR, followed by remarks from Shukri Ahmed, Deputy Director, Office of Emergencies and Resilience at the FAO. I then moderate a panel discussion featuring Professor Dr. Vali Kubi, a professor at and director of the Center for Comparative and International Studies at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, Zurich, Dr. Bina Desai, head of programs with the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, Pablo Escribano, regional thematic specialist for the Americas, Migration, Environment, and Climate Change with the International Organization for Migration, and Professor Dr. Marissa Oensor, adjunct professor with the Institute for the Study of International Migration at Georgetown University. After they take some questions from the audience, some concluding remarks are offered by Katrina Kosak, fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute and lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. All right, now here is Schengen Pham, System Board Member, CGIAR. Enjoy. Welcome to Climate Related Mobility and Conflict, Pathways to Peace and Human Security, one of the side events of the first International Migration Review Forum. It is my great honor to be part of this webinar co-hosted by FAO and CGIAR. I wish to thank both organizations for inviting me. I'm Shengen Fan and a member of CGR System Board, and I'm also a professor at the China Agricultural University. CGIR is a global research partnership for a food secure future, dedicated to reducing poverty, enhancing food and nutrition security, and improving natural resources. We are very excited to have you here to discuss with us the importance of addressing the linkages between climate-related mobility and conflict, and the pathways to peace and human security. Conflicts are driving a dramatic increase in the number of forcibly displaced people, from 40 million people in 2011 to almost 66 million in 2016. In 2020, around 55 million people were estimated to be internally displaced due to conflict, violence, and disasters. This trends do better. Protracted conflicts around the world have been one of the main causes of rise in global hunger in recent years. The primary drivers of conflict are often political, social, economic, and environmental. Climate change, including shocks such as drought, floods, and extreme weather, compounds the impacts and the severity of conflict. In fragile contexts, where government systems and resources are already strained, the ability to respond to these events is especially challenging. Migration helps people 
cope with these challenges. But forced movement of people and food insecurity may also fuel conflicts, resulting in virtuous cycles, especially for rural populations. The link between climate migration and conflict is complex and not direct. It is essential to examine how research can be leveraged to climate resilience peace. The CGI is dedicated to transforming food, land, and water system in a climate crisis. Those systems are at the heart of climate-related mobility and conflict. The CGI must address these critical challenges and harness food, land, and water systems as sources of peace and stability using evidence-based research. First, ensuring productive livelihoods and food security is critical. 1.5 billion people live in fragile and conflict-affected states, and they've confronted lifelong challenges and rising food prices that are only further compounded by climate change, poor governance, and economic disruptions such as COVID-19 and the Ukraine-Russian crisis. Second, harnessing the benefits and addressing the costs associated with migration is essential. As mid-2021, 84 million people were forcibly displaced worldwide. 80% of them experienced acute food insecurity and high levels of malnutrition. Migration can support livelihoods and protect against fragility and conflict, particularly for youth. But even voluntary migration can create new risks and challenges, especially for women who remain behind. Forced migration may also complicate development in host communities. Third and finally, efforts to address fragility and conflict must be climate as well as gender sensitive. In 2020, 76% of internally displaced people were displaced by disasters nearly all weather-related. Gender and social inequality further increase risks of hunger, while also acting as structural constraints to stability and peace. In conclusion, amid these challenges, a systems approach is needed to bring about stability and peace in fragile and conflict-affected settings. The CGI has committed through its 2030 research and innovation strategy to address these challenges with research-based evidence and innovations addressing climate security, migration, conflict, and fragility. So I wish you all an interesting session with our outstanding panelists. I would like to uh, thank Dr. Fan uh, from CGIR for the great welcome and really uh, setting the clear vision. I am Shukri Ahmed and I am uh, the Deputy Director for the Office of Emergencies and Resilience uh, at FAO. First of all, I would like to thank the co-organizers of this event, CGIR, who are important and valued partners of FAO. We're very pleased to be working together with you uh, once again. I'm really delighted to welcome you all to this event very timely for the International Migration Review Forum for a very important and timely discussion on climate-related mobility and conflict and the search for pathways to peace and human security.
Almost every day, we at FAO see the impact of climate change and increasingly intense climate-related shocks on the lives and livelihoods of communities around the world. And as you can imagine, the agri-food uh, system is really stretched in the uh, current world. However, we also know that these impacts are often not felt in isolation. Communities around the world who are already suffering from the consequences of a changing climate, particularly those who rely on agriculture to survive, are also facing complex, multiple interrelated threats to their food security and livelihood, which can drive migration and contribute to forced displacement. More people are being forced to flee conflict, violence, and disaster than ever before. Within the latest figure from, with the latest figure from UNHCR telling us that more than 84 million people are living in situations of forced displacement, further driving unprecedented levels of hunger. Likewise, those who have previously uh, been forced to flee and abandon their livelihoods are returning to communities struggling to adapt to a rapidly changing climate and increasingly scarce natural resources. The consequences of natural resources scarcity should not be underestimated. As we see, natural resources become scarcer, competition for these resources is growing, fueling new and existing conflicts and helping to lock us into a cycle of conflict, displacement and hunger, where the most vulnerable suffer the greatest. This brings me to why at FAO, we believe these conversations are very critical. It has never been more important for us to not only acknowledge the complexity of these challenges, but to also identify concrete pathways for humanitarian development and peace actors to contribute to peace and human security in the face uh, of climate change. FAO strongly believes in employing a humanitarian development peace nexus, which aims to address the complex interlinkages I have spoken about and reduce, thus reduce vulnerabilities before, during, and after crisis. This approach allows us to work together with our partners to not only help communities cope with climate change, conflict, and displacement impacts, but also promote climate change, resilience, and adaptation. It also allows to find community-led solutions to manage scarce natural resources, which can not only help fight food and nutrition insecurity, but also address the drivers of forced displacement and contribute to sustainable peace outcomes. I look forward to hearing more from our panel today on this subject of crucial importance for FAO. I will now pass the floor, uh, the, the, the microphone, the virtual microphone over to Mark uh, Goldberg, editor of the UN Dispatch, who will serve as our moderator uh, today. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, thank you and welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am the editor of UN Dispatch and host the Global Dispatches podcast. Today's conversation on climate-related mobility and conflict pathways to peace and human security is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. Uh, I have the pleasure of, of moderating a conversation with excellent panelists, whom I will now introduce. Uh, 
Professor Dr. Vali Kubi is a professor at and the director of the Center for Comparative and International Studies at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, Zurich. Bina Desai is head of programs with the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. Pablo Escribano is regional thematic specialist for the Americas, Migration, Environment, and Climate Change with the International Organization for Migration. Professor Dr. Marissa Oensor is adjunct professor with the Institute for the Study of International Migration at Georgetown University. Uh, welcome to everyone. Uh, so I will have some questions for our panelists, and I will be sure to leave plenty of time for audience questions as well. If you would like to ask a question, click on the Q&A box at the bottom of the screen, type your questions in there, and then click submit, and we will do our best to get to as many questions as possible. Uh, so with that, let us begin. And Vali Kubi, I will kick off my questions to you. Uh, can you share two key insights from your work that can help frame our understanding of the complex nexus between climate, migration, and conflict? And can you please explain why you think understanding this nexus is so important? Uh, thank you so much for the introduction. And I would also like to thank the organizers for inviting me. Uh, to participate in this side event. I would also like to note that my research focuses on the individual and examines whether, why, and how individual perceptions of extreme climate events like droughts or storms, floods, affect their decision to migrate as well as their willingness to engage in political violence. Uh, the findings that you are asking me to mention, uh, to, to reveal here, are based uh, on uh, individual level surveys uh, in developing countries, including uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Uganda, Kenya, Nicaragua, and Peru. Uh, I'm, I'm stressing this because it's not unique to one only country. Now, regarding the most important finding of my research, is that environmental migration is predominantly internal. Uh, it can take different temporal and spatial uh, domains. Uh, it can be you know, for a few months or permanently, or it can be just shifting a house inside the village because of erosion, or move a bit farther away to another village and then to the cities. And the question now is, do climate-induced migration can increase the potential for violence? And in my research, we are looking at urban social disorder. Uh, and what we are looking at is to what extent migrants who had experienced climatic events were more likely uh, to perceive that they are discriminated in those uh, places, in these urban cities, and why and whether they will be willing uh, to participate in protest, uh, even if protests tend to be violent. And really, we did find such a relationship. Uh, migrants who had experienced droughts, salinity, coastal erosion, are more likely to feel discriminated. But also migrants who had felt had experienced both events. They had a drought for a long time, and then there was, say, a big storm or a flood, and then they moved to the cities, and they are very likely to participate uh, in protests uh, in order uh, to 
um, change or to, to, to uh, alleviate their problems in the city. Of course, since it needs to, to tango, uh, we need to have the perspective of the urbanites, right? Uh, and what we find, uh, we have again surveys with our citizens in major cities in these countries, and we find that uh, um, uh, urban residents uh, do consider environmental uh, migration to be legitimate, but not more legitimate than economic migration or social migration. Uh, that implies that, uh, you know, when you have poor people, uneducated people move to those cities and they are the ones that they're going to ask to, to need the more help, they're less likely to receive it. Uh, and that implies that you are going to have a high probability of conflict at low levels of conflict. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, we will now turn to Dr. Bina Desai. To what extent do climate shocks and stresses influence migration and conflict? How can data collection efforts be better adapted to represent the complex linkages between climate shocks, migration, and conflict? Thank you very much, Mark. I think when we look at this connection between three very complex systems in themselves, climate change, migration, including voluntary and involuntary, and then conflict, we need to unpack maybe the different relationships among them. So first, just a point on climate change and displacement, particularly the relationship between forced migration, because I, I think we need to be clear, migration in itself is not a problem. It's been part of human development for, for, for as long as we can think. But the, the force, the, the, the matter of a lack of choice, the movement uh, that we record at the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center is what we're interested in. And we record since 2008 disaster-related displacement uh, around 25 million every year, um, and 90% of this round are weather-related. So clearly climate change can have an impact on these. Climate change has been now unequivocally uh, seen as being uh, having an uh, impact on the frequency and intensity of hazards, but it does so differently in different for different hazards and in different regions. So we also need to be aware of that. Now we bring into the mix conflict, and we see that the increasing complexity um, that has also been recognized now by the most recent IPCC report um, on climate change impacts, is that, the, that there, there's a, really the recognition now that the vast majority of also conflict-related displacement happens in countries that, have, uh, that, that are vulnerable to climate change. So this means, for in terms of data collection, that we really need to stop shying away from doing research in these countries before usually conflict contexts were not seen to be areas where we would do in-depth assessments of climate risks or what can be done about disaster risk reduction. Now we recognize we need to go where the, where the most vulnerable are, including in, in conflict settings, but also we need to start filling some of the very basic data gaps. So how long are people displaced for? Vali was mentioning it's internal displacement that is temporary, but often it can be protracted. Who is displaced? And also, Vali, it's great to hear your research because, you know, what are their aspirations? What are their intentions? It's really, we still don't know about that at scale. We have small scale studies, but not enough of those. And then really look at the small scale events that show us that vulnerability, pre-existing structural inequality, poverty, et cetera, what role that plays, because that can be really much more easily addressed than often the bigger hazard impacts that we face in the context of climate change. Uh, thank you. Uh, and we're now going to turn to Marissa O. Ensor. Um, over to you. 
when thinking of the nexus between climate migration and conflict and human security risks, why do we consider how gender, or why do we need to consider, I should say, how gender intersects with class, age, ethnicity, and other axes of classification? All right. Thank you, Mark, for that question. I'll go straight to the point. Um, some of you may be familiar with the expression that uh, climate change is a threat multiplier uh, in that it tends to exacerbate pre-existing vulnerabilities, including gender inequalities. Uh, climate change is widely recognized as one of the greatest threats to peace and security in the 21st century. The causal pathways that link deteriorating environmental conditions, insecurity, and conflict, while seldom automatic or linear, are nevertheless ubiquitous. The adverse impact of climate change exacerbate other risk factors, especially in already fragile contexts. In turn, these factors magnify pre-existing economic, social, or political drivers of insecurity. The intersection of gender and other dimensions of identity plays a critical role in determining how people experience, respond to, and recover from the adverse effects of climate change. Compounded security and climate-related risks are also more likely to magnify challenges related to governance, entrenched gender inequalities, and deepen the marginalization of women and girls. Women and girls and members of other vulnerable populations are thus placed on the front lines of multiple and interrelated crises. I would, however, caution against adopting stereotypical assumptions. Vulnerabilities driven by gender subordination may be offset by belonging to a dominant ethnic group or higher economic status, for instance. Nevertheless, gender is recognized as the single biggest determinant of a person's agency in and out of crisis. It is also one of the most important factors shaping the migratory experience. Environmental migration, like other types of migration, is a gendered process. Migrants of all genders have different needs and priorities and, and um, are exposed to various risks along their ways. Adaptation, that is the ability to adapt to and cope with changes due to climate change, is also gendered. Adaptive capacities of individuals greatly depend on income, education, health, and access to natural resources, among other factors. As climate change destroys existing livelihoods, women are more exposed to the risk of being left behind in uh, trapped in dangerous environments while also expected to take care of family and household responsibilities when men migrate to seek better livelihood opportunities elsewhere. Experience shows that migration as an adaptive strategy can lead to shifts in gender roles, contribute to changing oppressive gender relations, and provide new opportunities to improve women's and men's lives. However, it is important to underline that migration itself can also exacerbate existing inequalities between women and men. It can expose them to new vulnerabilities and intensify gendered experiences of poverty, discrimination, and socioeconomic inequality. Gender is therefore critically relevant to all aspects of, the migra of migration and is a crucial factor in understanding the causes and consequences of environmental migration more specifically. Um, to conclude, I want to emphasize that the way women and girls, men and boys, are impacted in any given situation must be empirically investigated rather than assumed a priori. I would offer that gender analysis is a key tool in developing adequate and durable responses to environmental migration so that these responses meet the various needs of people in of different intersection, <clears throat> excuse me, different intersectional gender and age groups. 
gender analysis can also show how existing gender inequalities shape people's ability to adapt to climate impacts, affect decisions to weather and how to migrate, and their experiences of migration. Evidence-based climate, humanitarian development, and migration programming is needed. Data, not anecdotes or stereotypical assumptions, are essential to ensure that policies and interventions are effective, fair, gender-sensitive, and responsive, and implementable at the regional, national, and local level. Otherwise, the risk perpetuating existing inequalities and vulnerabilities, or even creating new ones. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Pablo Escribano. We'll turn to you now. Uh, how have you seen the linkages between climate migration, conflict, and human security risks play out in your area of work? And can you give examples from your region? Sure. Thank you very much, Mark. And thank you very much to, to the organizer for, for, for having me. So as, as the title of, the, of this event says, I think human mobility is really a, a great angle to look at the, at the interactions between climate, migration, and conflict, right? Human security, uh, and I quote the, the General Assembly resolution, addresses widespread and cross-cutting challenges to the survival, livelihood, and dignities of people. And I think that the, the human security lens, what it does is really put, uh, or ask us to look at the cross-cutting, uh, um, um, the exchanges and interactions between climate, uh, migration and security in very innovative ways. And I think the people-centered approach is also crucial because we have the tendency to look at, at climate uh, migration as a security uh, item through the lenses of receiving countries and receiving communities, right? And I think we have to counter that and ask, right, whose security are we looking at? And shouldn't we be looking at the security of the most affected populations, right? Those who are on the front lines of climate change, who are really which suffers the consequences of, of, of climate change, disasters, and environmental degradation. The area I work in is the Americas, and and, and recognize there's still, uh, uh, despite some 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 very good work, there's still less attention on climate security and migration than in other regions of the world, like like the Chad, the Lake Chad in particular. But we have strived with, in particular, with the climate security mechanisms to look at the interactions between climate uh, migration and conflict. And what we see is that in communities of origin, in particular in rural communities there's an interaction between multiple drivers of migration. So we have examples, for instance, of people who lost their jobs because of the pandemic. They've been affected by sort of the prevalence of violence and conflict, and they've also lost all their goods, all their livelihoods uh, through the, for instance, the, the hurricanes in 2020. And so we don't see climate and security issues and even economic uh, opportunities as sort of different drivers, but really interactive uh, drivers that act together in a very systemic risk uh, scenario. So what we're seeing in places like rural Honduras, like rural Guatemala, these drivers really work together in very complex <laughs> ways, right? And, and you cannot basically separate one from the others. We know that um, scarcity of, of natural resources because of climate change has the potential to drive increased instance of conflict. And we also seen research on the on the role, in particular, of transnational crime organizations, in particular drug uh, drug trafficking and the drug industry, right, in driving, for instance, deforestation and changing landscapes, and how that affects communities. So we do really see very concretely in rural areas, in particular, how the use of land for drug um, for the drug industry contributes to degradation worsens the impact of climate change and ultimately acts as drivers of migration in the sense of the global compact. 
But as 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 Vali said, and I really take her her point, um, which I think is critical. It takes two to tango, right? And we have to look at destination areas, and in particular, urban areas in the region. And we have to ask ourselves, what's the vulnerability of these climate migrants who leave rural areas and go to cities? And we have to remind that Central America is still a fast urbanizing region, right? Capitals of Central America are still growing in size every day. And what we're seeing there is still an exposure to climate impacts and compounded, sorry for the train passing by, Uh uh, and compounded impacts of of climate and insecurity. And we saw examples, for instance, in 2020 after the hurricanes, Mm. uh, Maras, so so local gangs, used the situation of disorder to seize control of some neighborhoods. So there we see the interactions. And a very final point to end, uh, I I really appreciate uh, the comments of of Dr. Anser on, on gender, which I think is a critical lens to look at this interaction between climate and security. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, thank you, uh, Pablo. And uh, Vali Kubi, you were, you were name checked by Pablo, so I, I will turn it to you next for our second round of questions. Um, how can research on the nexus between climate migration and conflict also assist those who are less likely to migrate in response to climate and conflict-related fragility? Great, thanks a lot. Uh, I'm going to start with Bina's observation that migration, it is a good adaptation strategy. Not always. There are some studies that shows that might be maladaptation. Yet, uh, we know that uh, mobility does not depend only on the exposure. depends also on the adaptive capacities of the individuals experiencing climatic events. In our research, we have shown that uh, or at least our research highlights uh, that uh, there are differentiated constraints uh, on migration ability, and these are important for actual migration behavior. In particular, we have found that individuals who lack in either human or financial capital seems to be a primary reason for immobility, and especially in very vulnerable areas uh, in the presence of climatic events. For example, individuals uh, with low level of education or low level of income are less likely to move when facing any type of climatic event. So we really find some evidence, perhaps it is uh, preliminary, uh, but trapped populations exist. And there are, we have also seen that in some places also female uh, women are my, and children are the most vulnerable of all. Now, in, so what does this imply? Uh, I, I will come back to the comments of Mr. Ahmed. Uh, that it seems that it is imperative for local, national, and international organizations, governments, uh, to, 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 to improve the supply of humanitarian aid to areas affected by short-term climatic events. But at the same time, it's imperative they need to increase the financial and technological support for effective adaptation to long-term climatic events, uh, droughts, and the like. In this way, definitely, they will they will aim they they will minimize uh, the necessity to move. Now, having said that, there are going to be cases, instances when people need to move. In these cases strategies must be in place to provide assistance and basic social services and facilitate permanent solutions by fostering the migrants' socioeconomic and political integration in urban areas or rural areas. 
and assist them in managing their long-term grievances, which probably is the most important underlying reason for them uh, to be willing to participate in conflict and violence. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Bina Desai, uh, over to you. How can researchers and humanitarian development peace actors work in closer alignment to fill evidence gaps and translate knowledge into impact? Thank you. I think I've touched on that in my first uh, round of interventions, really go to those areas where those actors are already operating um, in silos still very much. So I think it's really a matter of ultimately getting the smart people in each of those communities to come together and do joint assessments, joint analysis. There's a lot of good data, actually, despite all the data gaps I mentioned earlier. There's a lot of good data existing in each of those communities, but very often it's not brought together. So that's really kind of the first one, I think. Um, And with this, maybe more concretely, one example, I mean, we've heard a number of those examples already from the colleagues here on the panel, but another one is, for example, in Sudan, uh, where there's increasing uh, numbers of pastoralists being displaced due to changes in in weather patterns and rainfall, and therefore them um, moving to to new pastures and other areas where they then, on the surface, clash with um, farmers who who are farming land and owning land there. But those farmers themselves are not necessarily the original owners of those farms. They had been themselves displaced previously or have taken over land from uh, farmers who have been displaced and become IDPs internally displaced people elsewhere. And now, so when we look at the peace agreement that was uh, forged, the Yuba agreement, uh, we see that there's a, in, there, there's a, a, um, um, a, a, a provision there around land rights for those displaced populations to be able to come back and reclaim their land, generating potentially new displacement risk. And this is all... Um, in a sense, assessed and looked at separately. So there are, you know, different uh, uh, people doing research, but also then then negotiating these different um, aspects of, of and these different dynamics uh, separately. So this is really important, I think. And and we also in the in the migration community and displacement community or in the climate change community, we need to look at, you know, how we then connect that. And this is very much coming back to what Pablo and also Vali said connect that to the basic development actors. So it's still, we're talking a lot about the nexus, but that means really connecting data on displaced populations with housing data, with uh, education and health sector data. And then ultimately, maybe the last point, um, also looking at the impacts today, what impacts and implications those have for the future and further down the line on individuals as well as communities. And there's still not enough analysis of that, even though we have some clever models starting to help us, but understanding that each model in itself is important will not give us the solution or the the correct uh, replication of reality, but that each one can be useful in its own right if we bring it together in the right manner uh, and in an integrated fashion. Thanks. Uh, Thank you. Uh, And Marissa Ensor, I have the, the same question to you. How can researchers and humanitarian development peace actors work in closer alignment to fill evidence gaps and translate knowledge into impact? Okay, well, thank you for that question, which is a very important question, isn't it? And one with which I am still grappling myself. 
Um, now, we are seeing an increasing focus on uh, data-driven or evidence-based uh, decision-making and programming. And this underscores the need for collaborative relations between scholars and researchers on the one hand and policymakers and practitioners on the other. Um, Conceptually and in practical terms, there has been a conspicuous disconnection between the academic community and the various communities of practice, including the humanitarian development peace actors. Part of the reasons, um, part of the reason for this situation has been the failure to identify mechanisms to establish mutually beneficial collaborative partnerships among the various actors involved. Unless these partnerships are designed and recognized as mutually beneficial, those who do not have an incentive in collaborating are not going to be motivated to do so. Um, establishing collaborative partnerships between researchers and humanitarian development peace actors requires the ability to work not just across disciplines, but across different communities of practice with um, diverging epistemologies and different methodologies, operational priorities, ethical imperatives, and power differentials. Conducting operational research in the context of peace building, development, or humanitarian response is a much needed but difficult and challenging enterprise. On the one hand, research driven by academics carries the risk that the senior academic managers may lack awareness of the relevance of the research question to field operations. Um, additional concerns include the perception of research, diverting operational funds and resources, and the longer time needed for the incorporation of study results. In this type of arrangement, um, operational field actors may be precluded from contributing substantively to the research question, data analysis, and interpretation. In that case, they may not incorporate results into subsequent programs and dismiss the process as a top-down academically driven activity, resulting in a possible weak impact on the program. On the other hand, research driven by operational actors may lack the capacity or support to evaluate results in the context of broader concerns in the existing literature. This is a serious limitation as such assessment could contribute critical insights on local operations and local findings. The link to an updated set of broader academic literature, writing skills and technical tools is often difficult to maintain in the humanitarian setup and can be nurtured and developed together with academic partners. Collaborative processes between academic partners and field actors can accelerate integration of research findings into the operational and policy reality, linking early results with planning processes. To do this effectively, it is imperative to balance issues of comprehensiveness and practicality. Collaboration between scholars and practitioners can also help to mutually enhance the learning process of both groups, including helping to identify and frame research questions, supporting data collection and analysis, sharing practical and theoretical knowledge, and developing expertise in the Global South. Additionally, joint research involving field actors and academics with complementary expertise has the potential to contribute to improved responses for those affected by complex and protracted crises if it is conducted with proper resources, mutual respect for one another's competencies and constraints, and trust in a shared vision. Collaboration must carefully consider the roles and responsibilities of diverse actors, as well as the benefits and challenges of collaboration along issues that include complementary expertise, shared goals and objectives, reward structures, funding mechanisms, mutual gains, and shared ownership, 
while avoiding the risks of instrumentalization, miscommunication, and unequal power dynamics. Okay, I'll pause there, and I'm happy to revisit these issues during Q&A. Uh, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. And uh, Pablo Escribano, uh, last question to you before we get to our Q&A uh, section. How might migration-related policy and programming be better aligned with climate action and peace-oriented solutions and vice versa? Yes, thank you very much. And I'll try to be short because I'm looking very much looking forward to the, to the Q&A. So maybe I would like to, to raise four points I have noted that I think would be important, right? The first one, being a started hint here, it would be the issue of, of cutting across silos, right? Because we oftentimes still see, uh, for instance, disaster risk reduction interventions that do not look at the violence and conflict settings or the violence and conflict uh, scenarios in some regions, right? And and obviously, if in line with the GCM, we're trying to address the adverse drivers that compel people to move, we're not going to be successful if we look at them individually, right? I mean, because we know, I mean, we can basically adapt or help communities adapt to climate change, but then if they have violence prevalence of lack of employment, we're not going to be successful at addressing these drivers, drivers in, a, in a comprehensive manner. So I think that that's a very important part of the, of the, of the solution here, integrating more uh, conflict prevention uh, in, for instance, climate action, climate adaptation. The second point I would like to make, and, and it's something also that colleagues have hinted at, is that uh, uh, I would say that obviously trends of, of climate migration are there, are increasing, and most of them are unavailable uh, in most climate change projections, right? So we do have to look forward, we do have to prepare future migrants and future cities. Um, because as the IPC says, in order for migration to contribute to adaptation, enabling conditions have to be in place, right? Um, and so that means looking at migrants, looking at their skills, being their skills, making them, uh, helping them being successful if they have or if they want to migrate, uh, notably uh, to cities, but also preparing future cities. What does it mean for cities to sort of envisage an arrival of, of new migrants? Where do they settle? How, how are they protected? Where do they work? What kind of ac- access to social protection do they have? There's, um, again, a good example in, in, in the Americas of, of urban projects. Resilient cities project that look at limiting the impacts of climate hazards. They need to be more inclusive of, of conflict prevention. A third point I'd like to make is also maybe looking at now international movements, international migration. We, we sort of praise uh, migration policies that leave a room to uh, help people um, access their territory when affected by disasters, right? The issue of humanitarian visas using um, free movement, and that has, for instance, been the case in the Eastern Caribbean. That's potentially not enough if the, the, the conditions are not there for people not only to enter the territory, but to access protection, to access social, social rights. And, and that's why, for instance, the Eastern Caribbean is looking at contingent rights, right? What are the rights that are contingent to free movement and that need to be there for people crossing borders in context of, of disasters? And the final point I would like to make is also maybe looking at something that Bina said on, on terms of monitoring impact and monitoring and evaluation. We're starting to see new policies, things like planned relocation, humanitarian visas. We need to know what works and what doesn't, right? And I do understand that we're still in early stages in some of them, but we still need, or we, we have to now look at, right, what's their impact? How can we make them better? How can we improve? How we can look at cross-cutting um, dynamics of vulnerability, including gender, age, indigenous population, socioeconomic conditions, how they affect differently um, these populations. Thank you very much. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, huge thank you to our panelists. Uh, we've been getting questions over the Q&A chat box. So I'm going to dive right into it. We have about you know, 13 minutes or so for Q&A. Uh, and so we'll, we'll try to get through as many as possible. So uh, this first question, I think, can be addressed by each of you in a sort of lightning round kind of format. Uh, if there is one key message you would like to share for the community of practice working on the nexus of climate, migration, fragility, and conflict, what would it be? Uh, one key message, Veli Kubi, I'll start with you. Uh, as a scientist, uh, I'm not, I, I, I think that I've, we need a lot more data. I believe what we have so far, it's very context specific and a lot of the things, as I said, and I said it from the beginning, it's coming from these five countries, six countries. Uh, for me, the key message is it is a very complex relationship uh, and we need more data to find out what exactly are the conditions that lead to migration. Because if we don't know exactly what the conditions are, I will, any policy intervention is not going to be useful or helpful. Uh, people do not want to go. People would like to stay in their places. So if that is the case, policies are going to be different. And then, you know, when people migrate or move to different cities, to different settings, then the needs might be, again, different. And, uh, you know, policies, one side fit all, probably are not going to be very appropriate. Thanks. More data. Thank you, uh, Vali Kubi. Bina Desai, one key message. Maybe more connected data, as I said earlier, and really under the framing of risk, of really understanding that what we do at any point in time will have an impact in the future. And what I do as an individual will have an impact on others. And with that framing in mind already, that'll already help us connecting some of the some of the data that we do have. And then also the planning processes, because I, we always talk about evidence-based policymaking, but that has to be done in a much more integrated manner now. It's complex, it takes time, but that means also we have to get the money pour it into those countries where this type of planning has to happen. And the so-called donor community has to face up to that and actually uh, acknowledge that. Thanks. Uh, thank you. And yes, uh, Marissa, over to you. One key message. All right. Well, um, I would emphasize uh, breaking down silos, building bridges between the various communities and focusing on intersections. Um, I do agree that we need more data, we need better data, but um, uh, the data that we have tends to focus on these individual issues in isolation or perhaps uh, looks at them one by one, um, emphasizing gender, which it was um, what I focused on, uh, you know, gender and climate change, gender and migration, as opposed to gender migration security and so forth and so on. And so I think we need to come to terms with the realization or um, in practical terms that these various issues are not um, impacting uh, the human experience in isolation, but that they are interrelated and in many cases mutually constitutive and they need to be treated as such. Uh, thank you. Uh, and Pablo, your one key message. All, all, the, all the good messages are taken. Uh, <laughs> 
but but I, I will say that maybe just to finalize on, on, on something that I haven't said is that my key message would be that you cannot address the adverse drivers of migration without localization, right? And really looking at the conditions in 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 communities, in really places that, that are affected by the climate um, security and even uh, economic issues, right? So you really need to look at, at very local realities and how they interact, these dynamics interact with each other. Um, and obviously data and, and research being fundamental in that regard. Uh, thank you. So our next question is to Bina and Valley, pegged to your response to that first question. Uh, what is the recommended sampling methodology to collect data on populations displaced by climate change? We'll go with uh, uh, Bina first and then Valley. Uh, go ahead, Bina. I'll say how long is a piece of string. It depends on what type of displacement population you want to survey and what your research question is. So we'll be happy to connect with me and, and we can discuss if you're interested in a specific research topic or, or a situation to assess and then we can discuss that. Uh, okay, Valley, anything to, to add or maybe you can get a little more specific? Uh, I think Bina uh, goes for large samples here. I go for small samples and uh, for me the best way is either to use register reg registers documents uh, when this is possible uh, otherwise, usually I do a lot of snowballing, but that it is very consuming, expensive, and you cannot do it for a very large project unless you have a funder and you can do it for many years. We need panel data. We need to start at one year and follow the citizens or you know the residents of one place for many years to come. Thanks. And, and uh, Pablo or Marissa, do you want to uh, take a stab at this question? Um, well, um, the large majority of the research that I do um, uses or I use a mixed method approach that combines both qualitative and quantitative uh, methods. Um, and so for the quantitative aspect of it, which I tend to do at the end, um, I tend to begin with a qualitative, more exploratory um, um, more uh, lived experiences kind of investigation. Um, I use what is known as the point of saturation, which is um, the point at which by repeating the data uh, collection exercise, one stops um, adding new data um, to your sample. And so um, the number itself is very much determined by the homogeneity or heterogeneity of the population with respect to the variable in question. If everybody's experiences of whatever you're studying are very, very similar, uh, the point of saturation is reached faster and therefore the size of the sample is going to be smaller. If the population is extremely diverse on uh, the, the variables under examination, the point of saturation is going to be reached later and the sample is going to be larger. And then for the quantitative aspect of the, of the research, I just use the, the typical formula and the sample tends to be much larger and ideally uh, randomly um, identified. So just a basic methodology, uh, a basic methodology strategy. Um, I happen to be the methodologist, <laughs> the professor of methodology uh, in my department. So as uh, has already been mentioned, if somebody wants to reach to me individually, I'll be happy to provide additional details um, because it very much depends on the project in question. 
Excellent. Uh, thank you, Pablo. Thank I'll you. give you the opportunity. Uh, if, no, okay. But he, he's for, for those who are listening, he is waving no thank you. So Pablo, I will uh, read a question from the audience to you. We have about five minutes left for, for the session. Um, quote, I am also glad to hear so many of you calling for collaboration across silos and stakeholders. How do we do that? Pablo, how do you how do you achieve that that cross sector collaboration? That that's a that's a great question because we all call for breaking silos, right? But then, what does it mean in reality, right? Uh, I, I tend to think so. I've said earlier that it's important to localize interventions. I think the national level is also important. What we're doing, for instance, from our side, is to create sort of national forums of, on 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 things that relate climate migration and and. Uh, and all the various issues that, that that intervene, right? And we try to sort of have national conversations. And 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 our in our experience, the, the the funny issue is that there's always someone missing at the table, right? So you can make a very big table with climate, with DRR, with uh, with migration specialists, with uh, even foreign affairs. But there's always someone who would be who wouldn't need to be there, right? Statistics, agriculture, water, researchers, civil society. So I think this in this this sort of Putting people together is crucial because these people you would be surprised by by how not they talk to each other, right? Or or how how that dialogue is missing. And then there's some policies, and I think there's good examples, right? For instance, in Peru, um, the Ministry of Environment is developing a plan of action on climate migration, right? So that 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 to me is a good idea because um, it allows Trotor to have a whole of government discussion on a very specific issue, but all ministers and departments are invited to contribute. Uh, Chile started a similar project process on guidelines on, on disaster and, and, and on displacement and climate change. So these policy processes are, are important and they can really pave a good way to enable um, whole of government interactions on, on these issues. Does anyone else uh, have any ideas or recommendations on cross-sector collaborations you'd want to share? Jump right in. Maybe I can just come in and Please, just, yeah. uh, reiterate my point on on funding, the funding has to be there for that. I think we should all, as responsible researchers or, or actors or policymakers, also when, when we then respond to calls for proposals, put these types of collaboration in and justify that. And I think then we can start to shift that needle. Thank you. Uh, Marissa or Valley, do you want to jump in on? Go ahead. Uh, Just Marissa. a quick comment, uh, which I already mentioned in my previous remarks, uh, and similar to what Bina said, um, funding and uh, other ways of incentivizing collaboration. I think that one of the reasons why partnerships are not always as effective is because they are not always perceived as mutually beneficial. And uh, um, there's many additional factors uh, besides uh, besides this, but I think that people are more likely to make an effort to collaborate and to make it effective and to make it work if they perceive the collaboration as mutually effective and mut sorry as mutually beneficial as opposed to it being perceived as a, a way of instrumentalizing the work of one group um, benefiting the work of the other group. And uh, I don't see this as being paid as much attention as it's as it would need. But uh, yeah. Funding and other incentives. Thank you, and and Valley, I'll give you the opportunity for a final word. Uh, funding uh, and cl much closer collaboration between uh, or international organizations, local organizations, and the scientists, and more collaboration between the different disciplines. 
uh, in the scientific community. I mean, Bangladesh trying to understand environmental migration with sea level rise, river bank erosion. And I need to understand exactly how this phenomenon operate in order to be able to see how people react to those and what it could be done. Thanks. Well, thank you to each of our panelists. This was great. Uh, I really appreciated all of your time. Uh, again, this was a live recording of the Global Dispatches podcast. I'm the host of the Global Dispatches podcast. You can find that show wherever you find your podcasts by subscribing or searching for Global Dispatches. It is now my pleasure to turn the camera and virtual mic over to Katrina Kosick, Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute and lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, over to you, Katrina. Thank you all and goodbye. Thank you. It is my esteemed privilege to be able to try to wrap up the really interesting, fascinating insights that have been provided by this panel. I'm very excited to, to delve into these issues. Um, I will note that these this is really particularly interesting to me in light of a new um, CGIR research program we are launching right now, and it's on the topic of migration, conflict, and fragility. We're going to be working for this program at the Humanitarian Development Peace Nexus in fragile and conflict-affected settings where we really want to build capacity to promote food security and sustainability and really stable and productive livelihood opportunities through food, land, and water systems. And we've got this four-pronged approach. We are planning to have early actions, so including forecasting tools and action plans. We want to bridge emergency operations on the one hand with long-term sustainability principles. And we want to really generate evidence on what are the policies and programs that support stability. Um, and we additionally want to accelerate innovation by pairing local inventors with our CGIR scientists to pursue and study um, solutions to a lot of the problems identified today. Um, so I'm filled with a lot of energy from our discussion, and I'm going to try to synthesize this in, in four points here. Um, so we, we know just kind of as a broad point there, this is a complex problem. And, and what I've heard today is we really need evidence-based decision-making and programming. That's critical. And we need this, this magical combination, right, of policymakers and researchers speaking to one another, taking this human security, people-centered approach to climate uh, migration. Um, and we need to focus on the most vulnerable people in particular. So turning to my, my four points here, the first thing I'm hearing here is that gender must be central when studying this climate migration conflict nexus. Uh, Pablo Escribano highlights how gender is a critical lens through which to examine climate and security. And then Marissa Ensor takes us here to point out that climate change is a threat multiplier that actually exacerbates gender inequality. And gender inequalities and governance challenges are thus going to be intensified in this context that we're studying. We need to keep our eyes on them. Um, Marissa also notes how we need to understand how gender inequalities affect a lot of different things. They affect the risks people face. They affect the adaptation strategies that they can pursue. They affect their resilience in the face of climate change. And we need to study this in a way that also does not ignore the intersectionality of gender with other attributes, things like age, things like so social status and class. 
Um, and I think this point of intersectionality is huge. Uh, Bina Desai highlights how poverty and inequality are key issues we need to address. And poor women, for example, and, and wealthier women may face a completely different experience. So understanding intersectionalities on a lot of dimensions is really critical. The second point seems to be that we need to bust some of the prevailing myths about migration. Migration, in Valley Kubi's words, is a good adaptation strategy. Bina Desai notes that migration itself is not a problem. It has been part of human development forever. And migration is also another myth. It's not all international migration. Often we hear migration, we think of international migration, but Valley Kubi brings us to the point that environmental migration is predominantly internal. Pablo Escribano also notes that we cannot focus only on push factors. We often think of push factors, how to stop migration. Um, we need to think of pull factors as well. Uh, and we need to also prepare future cities and destinations. Um, he's mentioned the, the urbanization happening in the world today. So we need to go beyond just looking at the, the push factors at origin to look at destinations and resilient cities. Third point, we need to cut across silos for holistic solutions and creative data collection and analysis. Valley notes that we need to know the conditions that lead to migration, and we cannot find policy solutions without correctly predicting where migration will occur. Um, uh, Marissa talks to us about the need for mixed methods approaches, and Bina pushes us to say that there needs to be connected data. We have to do things like connecting data on displaced populations with things like data and, uh, on service availability. Um, again, Marissa had her push for gendered analysis of migration um, and also partnerships across disciplines as well as communities of practice. And final point, we need to address the complexity of impacts and drivers of migration and shocks and conflict, this nexus. Bina draws our attention to people's aspirations and intentions. Valley talks about the behavior of migrants and destinations, and Pablo talks about transnational organized crime and the extent to which this can degrade landscapes. So I think we need to be very creative in, in where we are looking and, and drawing our attention um, in trying to understand uh, what, are, what are good policy solutions. Um, I wanted to, in case you want to know more about the topic discussed today, I would highly recommend reading the CGIAR Focus Climate Security's recent position paper. It's titled The Climate Security Mobility Nexus, Impact Pathways and Research Priorities. And it's really, it identifies key pathways through which climate change, human mobility, and conflict influence one another across geographies. And it makes some really nice recommendations for research and interventions that can sever linkages between climate-related mobility and conflict. And finally, just to conclude here, this has been really an exciting discussion. Um, I really would like to thank FAO for inviting us to co-organize this webinar. It has been our pleasure to partner with them on this important work, and we really look forward to the next steps. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to FAO and CGIAR for partnering with the podcast around this event. We'll see you next time. Bye.